Welcome to a special edition of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This is a special Easter edition and one that I have produced to address the current crisis that we are in. In this episode, I will subvert my own podcast by talking about a parable in the Gospel of Luke. And although this is an Easter episode, I will not be using a typical Easter passage because this Easter is not like other Easter's. I am indebted to Ched Myers for helping me to understand this very crucial parable for our current situation. This Easter is not like other Easter's. At the time of this recording, more than 108,000 people have died from the coronavirus over 20,000 of them in the United States. Death is all around us at a time that we celebrate resurrection. All these deaths are tragic, each one a heart-rending catastrophe. But there may yet be resurrection, the kind the prophets talked about, if we seize the moment. You see, we are living in a true apocalyptic moment, and this moment is providing us with a rare opportunity to fundamentally reshape our world. But we have to make some choices. We have to decide what kind of world we want. As the economy starts to collapse and many of us lose income, perhaps even our homes, if food shortages occur, what do we do? Do we hoard? Do we buy guns to protect what little we have left? Do we turn on each other? What can be easily forgotten in all of this is that there have always been people for whom the economy never worked. Our economy, in fact, has always been predicated on the impoverishment of some for the benefit of others, on the impoverishment here in the United States of some within our own borders, mostly in the black and brown communities, and the brutal exploitation of many more in the so-called Global South. As health care in the U.S. became a commodity to be sold to the highest bidder, with stock dividends going to the investor class, it became too expensive to give everyone health insurance, and therefore proper health care. So now people die for lack of health care in service to the economy. For a long time now, many of us could not be bothered with worrying about how our electronics are made, so children toil in rare-earth mineral mines in poorer countries, working themselves to death for our way of life. Our economy has always depended on people sacrificing themselves, or rather being sacrificed, crucified, as it were, for our sins. But while this is easy to forget, there is, at the same time, much that is being revealed, we are living in a true apocalyptic moment. You see, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means a revealing. 
The apocalyptic literature of the Bible is not so much about the actual end of the world, but rather it is about the times in which much is revealed, usually through an event that brings an end to the world as we know it. Much of the apocalyptic language of the New Testament actually describes the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 CE, not the actual end of the whole world, but the end of the world as many had known it. Other apocalyptic literature in the Bible imagines the destruction of brutal empires, such as the Roman Empire. But I want to look at a passage in the Gospel of Luke that tells of an apocalyptic moment in normal times, because apocalyptic moments actually happen all the time if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's read Luke 16, 1-9. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him to him and said, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This parable by Jesus in Luke has long put commentators in knots trying to figure it out. But perhaps we are now better able to hear its message in this apocalyptic moment. In normal times, commentators can't fathom why Jesus tells a story like this, in which the hero is a dishonest manager who misappropriates his employer's money. Surely, that is not what God calls us to do, is it? God surely doesn't want us to be dishonest employees. But maybe in times like these, we can finally understand that the parable describes an apocalyptic moment. In normal times, we are less likely to question the absolute right and power of an employer over an employee, or to have any problem with gross inequalities of wealth. After all, do not all people have the opportunity to attain the wealth they want? There's nothing wrong with being rich. And as for being poor, well. But in these times when the economy is crashing and we now finally understand that poverty can happen to anyone through no fault of their own, maybe now we are able to consider that maybe it not only can happen, but that this is the way it always happens. Sickness has always attacked randomly, 
and the circumstances of our birth were never under our control. And no, we don't all start in the same place or have the same opportunity or are even given the same gifts and abilities. We are randomly born, randomly gifted, and randomly become ill or endure an endless number of other fates. So maybe when Jesus begins the parable by saying, there was a rich man, we should at that point understand that it names a fundamental injustice right out of the gate, in its first sentence. Financial wealth then as now was predicated on the impoverishment of others. The landlord class, a very small minority, owned most of the land in Galilee in the early first century, leaving many of the peasants landless, working as tenant farmers or day laborers, barely surviving or not surviving at all. Hunger and malnutrition were widespread. The manager is part of a very small retainer class, the closest thing to a middle class that existed in the first century Mediterranean world. Ched Meyer suggests that we might think of this manager as the ancient equivalent of a present-day mid-level bureaucrat in a large corporation. Myers continues to describe the manager's situation in his response to it. He is a mid-level bureaucrat in a large corporation who, just as he is about to be downsized because of below-expected sales numbers, improvises a desperate but ingenious fire sale that ingratiates him to his clients. This repositions him for his own survival toward the alternative relational economy of mutual aid, which survives just below the surface of the dominant market system. You see, although peasants had to operate and survive in the brutal economy run by the elite landowning class, they were able to maintain an economy of mutual aid among themselves, an economy that distributed resources according to need. That is what the manager is referring to when he hatches his plan to be welcomed into the homes of his employer's peasant clients. Although he has been living life in the retainer class, he hopes that the peasant network of mutual aid will be his safety net. They will be his resurrection. He quickly calls his boss's clients, presumably before they have received word of his termination, and he adjusts their debt obligations. Of course, he has to ask them what those debt obligations are because he no longer has access to the records, but the ruse works. Once the new deals have been made, it is no longer possible in this honor-shame society for the boss to go back on them. Through what sociologists call the gossip network, the community has already learned of the boss's generosity. The boss has gained considerable honor and is now a sort of hero. To reveal that these deals were not his idea or intention would be to lose more honor than he had gained. The manager was very clever, and the boss recognizes this and commends him for it. Of course, the manager does not get his job back, and it is even likely that the employer can easily weather this temporary loss of profit. But perhaps the manager will be welcome into the homes of the working class now. And Jesus, driving the point home, says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes.
You see, from Jesus' point of view, in fact, not just from Jesus' point of view, but from the entire peasant class point of view, the wealth of the landowning and even retainer classes is all dishonest wealth. If you have it, you are already morally compromised. So this is not about being morally pure, but merely about what to do now. And the same can be said today. Any wealth that we have accrued in this economy is derived somewhere along the way from the exploitation of workers, from those who toil in the sweatshops where our clothes are made to those who toil in the fields where our food is grown. Workers are being exploited for our way of life. The wealth we have, from that point of view, is all dishonest or immoral wealth. The question is not whether we can attain moral purity, but what to do now. But more than that, this parable is a warning to all who depend on the dominant economy. For we are not just its beneficiaries, we are also eventually its victims. The parable is a warning that one way or another, it will likely fail us. Whether it's full economic collapse or just the loss of a job in normal times. The question is not if, but when. So you might as well prepare for it by using the dishonest wealth to make friends, to build a safety net of mutual aid. There is no purity here. There is just pragmatic solidarity, safety in numbers, and trading in the old mammon economy for the more enduring love economy. The word for wealth in this passage is the word mammon. Myers provides an explanation of this word. Mammon, which only appears in the New Testament here, and the parallel in Matthew 6.24, seems to be a dark metaphor for the economic system of domination. Though not in the Hebrew Bible, it does appear in later Jewish writings. In the Mishnah, it connotes property, often as contrasted with life. In the Targum, it is an epithet for profit made through exploitation. So the manager in this parable realizes that his only hope is to try to make the transition from the mammon economy to the love economy. We all live by the mammon economy and depend on it to survive. We don't know another way. And now that economy is crashing. We are the dishonest manager in this parable. What do we do now? Some of us have already lost our jobs. Others of us still have more time. None of us knows how bad this economic downturn will be. But some estimates put the U.S. unemployment rate peaking at over 30%. By comparison, the U.S. unemployment rate during the Great Depression during the 1930s peaked at 25%. And even for those of us lucky enough to keep our jobs, something else may get us later. Due to the overlapping triplet threats of climate change, species extinction, and resource depletion, some experts predict that human civilization may collapse across the planet by mid-century. Whether individual, local, national, or global, each catastrophic event opens our eyes to our failure to have been prepared. Hindsight, as they say, is always 2020. But the parable challenges us to do something now, before it is too late. 
use the unrighteous wealth that we have now to build networks of mutual aid. And it challenges us to look at those lower in the economic hierarchy as our most valuable friends. The parable, I think, suggests that we should be sharing our wealth with them now, not as an act of charity, but as an act of pragmatic solidarity, so that when it is gone, they may invite us into their more enduring community. A community that can survive the economic collapse because it depends on love, not mammon. And therein lies our hope to remake our world. Therein lies our hope for resurrection. You can find Ched Meyer's article on the parable of the shrewd manager at RadicalDiscipleship.net in an article entitled Discipleship as Defection from the Mammon System, Jesus' Parable about a Manager of Injustice. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been a special edition of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.